Hi, this is Nikki Yeltsin, and today we'll be mapping celiac disease on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on the clinical relevance of the functional nutrition matrix, the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. The matrix is so important not only because it invites us to stop and assess, but also because it reminds us of three very important factors in our care, our recommendations, and our outcomes. Everything is connected, we are all unique, and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with Nikki Yelton. Nikki Yelton is an integrative and functional medicine registered dietitian nutritionist. She has an undergraduate degree in clinical nutrition science from East Carolina University, where she conducted several undergraduate research studies on physician awareness of celiac disease and policies and procedures of a gluten-free diet. Nikki completed her dietetic internship in dietetics at Lenoir Rhine University and continued her graduate education at Rutgers University studying complementary and alternative medicine. She has advanced education and training through the Institute for Functional Medicine and elsewhere as she continues to expand her knowledge in functional medicine and nutrition. Nikki, welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. Hi, Andrea. I'm so excited to talk to you about celiac disease, really dive into all the specifics. Can you start us out, Nikki, just by explaining physiologically what celiac disease is? Yeah, absolutely. So celiac disease actually affects about one in 133 Americans. That's pretty much the newest stat, which is pretty prevalent. So, you know, that's about 1% of the population. And basically what happens is gluten, essentially it's a protein, it's called gliadin. And when the immune system detects this protein, it basically causes an immune mediated response in certain individuals who have a particular autoimmune condition called celiac disease. So gluten actually acts as an antigen or a foreign toxin that can really just spread across the body and attack a lot of different just immune mediated responses. Yeah. And then what's happening in the body is the flattening of the villi. Are they then disrupting the absorption of nutrients? Exactly. So, you know, the VLI that lines the small intestine, this is really the area that's compromised. So when gluten enters the small intestine, it can't get broken down. And so as a result, the VLI is just kind of destroyed. So I kind of describe it as like a shaggy rug. So when this protein that somebody is super sensitive to gets into that section, the VLI is going to be damaged. And because of that, it's going to cause irritation, inflammation. And this kind of process, can even impact something called intestinal permeability, could lead to that, and just a whole bunch of, like you said, malabsorption of nutrients. 
Yeah, so much going on. And I want to go in and talk about how it can manifest. I've heard you talk about this and write about this, and it can manifest in so many different ways. But before we do that, I just want to stay on the left side of the matrix and a bit of the story for a minute. Are there actually genes involved in whether somebody has celiac or not? I mean, I like to say when there's autoimmunity, there's always three roots, right? The genes, the digestion, and the inflammation. But are there genes? And what are those genes? Yeah, there is. And most people will have a genetic predisposition to the actual celiac disease itself. So those genes are called DQ2 and DQ8. They are something that can be tested. But diagnosis of celiac is very tricky. So sometimes it's not always that black and white. There's a lot of gray area to it. So usually we need a little bit more of a diagnostic criteria than just looking at genetics. But there usually is some kind of a gene present when that person has the actual autoimmune celiac. And that's so interesting. And I know you have a great way of looking at the diagnostics and we'll definitely get there as well. But does it mean that our ancestors, even our predecessors, our parents have had celiac or even some kind of gluten sensitivity or food sensitivity or autoimmunity if we show up having celiac? Was that the situation with you? Did you have parents who had issues before you were diagnosed, Nikki? You know what? I did. And it's interesting because I think a lot of our ancestors, grandparents, you know, even parents, they probably didn't even realize it. And that's why this has been so hard. And we kind of look at celiac now and we're so used to it. So we see it all over and we're kind of like, well, where did this come from? You know, I think a decade ago when I got diagnosed, no one really had it. And really, when you think about our ancestors and just even again, like looking at our grandparents and parents, they did have GI conditions. They did suffer from GI distress and just never correlated it with anything. That's the case for my parents, my dad actually. And we did now find that although he doesn't have the gene, he is extremely what's called non-celiac gluten sensitive, which is also, you know, another big issue today. But yes. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how in the family tree that that kind of trickled down to me, but usually with autoimmunity many conditions kind of paired together. And that was the case for me. Yeah. It's so interesting when you say that, Nikki, when I think back and I'm in my mid fifties and I think back about how surprised people were if they had a child who had failure to thrive and then they went through like loads and loads and loads of testing and then ultimately recognized that they had celiac disease. And it feels to me, and maybe I'm living in our functional bubble, that it would be a more immediate thought when there are reactions to food and major digestive issues, that things have changed substantially in the last decade. You're so right by that. Now we're so aware of it and we kind of can start to, you know, kind of raise some questions when these things start to happen in our body and people are actually excited to be tested for it because it's so known now, which I think is really exciting for practitioners because people are they're ready for it. Right. Yeah. Want to find out like what's going on, what's happening in my body. So let's move to that central part of the matrix where we can talk about signs and symptoms and maybe just tick around and think through starting with those GI issues. What are we normally seeing? And, and I'm guessing we're not always seeing all of them. It might be some of the symptoms, but what kind of symptoms might we see in somebody who is celiac? 
Yeah, I would say the most obvious signs, because you're right, sometimes it's silent celiac is definitely a thing, and we see that a lot. But for the majority of individuals, we're going to see a lot of digestive discomfort. So this is going to be bloating, diarrhea, even constipation, so it can kind of go back and forth. That would be the main GI symptoms that we see. I would say more prevalent would actually be fatigue, really bad migraines, even skin rashes. So dermatitis, skin rashes. And then because the gut is so connected to our brain, we can see a lot of anxiety and depression, even weight loss. So it's hard because we can kind of put that in a lot of different buckets, right? With a lot of different conditions, but those would be really the main types of symptoms that we're going to see. Yeah. And then because the digestive tract is so impaired, like we were saying earlier, those nutrient deficiencies then can be upstream issues to so many other downstream imbalances especially if this goes undetected for years, this is where we see severe malnutrition because nutrients are obviously involved in everything. We're going to see areas like miscarriages and infertility in women. We see alopecia. I mean, this is where we see a ton of different other autoimmune triggers to kind of pop up. And that's just because this has gone undiagnosed. So it's hard. It's sad because when we see women with Hashimoto's or hypothyroidism, they're kind of like, well, where did this come from? And we can find that the root of it was really celiac the whole time. And we see that so often. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. We're kind of crossing that barrier and then introducing all sorts of other tissue damage as well. So it makes sense that it's so correlated. If we go back to the left side of the matrix and think through triggers or triggering events, we know the genes are present. Are there other lifestyle factors? I mean, I know we don't want to put blame on eating a certain way, but Are there other lifestyle factors or triggers that we could think of that lead to the tipping point of the diagnosis? Oh, absolutely. And that's such a great point because I feel like with not just celiac, but all autoimmune conditions, you know, it's always there, but it just takes something to kind of erupt it and to come to the surface. And so with celiac, that is definitely the case. And most of the time it's a stressful event or a trauma. This could be a stressful time in your life, like a personal issue. It could also be, sometimes we'll see physical trauma, like a car accident, or it could even be a good stress, like a pregnancy. So Sometimes in that postpartum stage for women, that's when celiac can kind of get to that point where now we're seeing all of these symptoms where we didn't before. Yeah, it makes sense that there's many things. It's like a tipping point, right? Like all of these things add up and hit that tipping point. Let's get into those areas that I know you like to look at in terms of the diagnostics. I think people get a little tripped up on those genes when there's so much more to look at. And as you said, it can be hard to diagnose. So how do you go about thinking through the diagnosis? I kind of look at four different areas because again, it's, there's no black and white. I wish that it was, but there's definitely just a lot of different scenarios out there. So the genes are definitely something that's worth looking at. And that would kind of be, I wouldn't say it's a first starting point, but it's definitely something that you're going to want to cross off the list. And then of course, symptoms. So if you have symptoms, that's a big red flag, right? So we can kind of check those two boxes off. And then third, believe it or not, would be if you were to do what's called like an endoscopy, which is a little bit more evasive. I actually suggest, and I really like to look at an intestinal permeability panel and to look at something called your actin and your zonulin levels, which if we look 
at these from a clinical standpoint, we actually see that we can tell how damaged the villi is. And we can also see how much spacing and tissue damage we have. So that's something that also, as far as like a diagnostic criteria, is really nice. And then lastly would be antibodies. So we can actually look at gluten gliadin antibodies. It's best to look at those from a peptide standpoint. So to actually see the differences between IgG, IgA peptides, because there's many, many gluten peptides. It's not just one. And we can really see the level of sensitivity that someone is presenting with when they ingest gluten. So what I love is I actually use specific testing that will look at both the antibodies. So how the person is reacting and responding to gluten, but also that intestinal permeability panel. So that's nice because between those four things, you really have a great clinical picture of that person. Yeah, I think you really nailed it there, Nikki, with the clinical picture as opposed to just getting a label. And again, I think this is where people can get really tripped up. And one of the things I always like to do first and foremost, and I don't know what your opinion is about this, is looking at regular old serum labs, seeing what our CBC with differential looks like, seeing those lymphocytes, then potentially going down to a full immunoglobin panel. Because sometimes when we go to that deeper level of testing, it can be false negatives because the immunoglobins are clinically low anyway. And then it causes this confused picture. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but I always like to kind of start gross and get narrow because it gives us such a different vantage point. Absolutely. And with that too, even just looking at something like vitamin D and nutrients. I mean, like you said, the clinical picture of a person, it's not just doing that one celiac, you know, panel on them. It's looking at the immunoglobulins. It's looking at the immune system as a whole. And there's certain nutrients that you're going to be low in your ferritin, your vitamin D blood sugar can be off. So we really need to be looking at all of these things and piecing that together using all the data. That's what it's all about, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I love that because I think that's one of the things that's often most difficult for me to explain to people because we come from such a diagnostic arena. We want that label, but we don't understand that that label exists in a context that could be worked on at the same time while we're looking for that specific label. So I like that perspective. Thank you for bringing us into that. Okay, let's get into the nitty gritty of the what to do, the mediator, so to speak, and the right side of the matrix. I know one thing is easy (laughs) or not so easy to do, but easy to say, (laughs) remove gluten. But how are we going about that? What else are we needing to do? Yeah. And I wish it was just so simple as like, we'll just go gluten free, you know, (laughs) Um, where that's definitely a great starting point. And I would definitely recommend that to begin with. There's really so many things that we have to be teaching patients and clients about when it comes to going gluten free. And it starts with reading labels, right? And the FDA does have the labeling laws. So that's a great starting point is to obviously teach them how to read labels, but we need to go beyond that. And so what that means is looking at cross-contamination because unfortunately now there's a lot of cross-reactivity with other grains. So when someone is in the beginning stages of healing, we might need to avoid things like oats, even certified gluten-free oats, because they do have a very similar structure as gluten due to something called molecular mimicry. So we need to be 
teaching and educating people that it's not just gluten. We have to really sometimes take it up a notch. And so that might mean avoiding some other proteins out there that mimic gluten, like even dairy for a small season of time. And then the usual cross-contamination, which is teaching them how to eat out and how to avoid gluten and cosmetics, which are kind of all over the place, things like bulk bins and cooking utensils and switching some of that out and prep areas. There's a lot to learn that it's really going to affect people. So it's good to start with the basics, but then as somebody with the condition is, you know, expanding their knowledge and they're more comfortable, that's when we really need to be teaching them about these more minute, but specific areas that are actually going to have a huge impact and role in their healing process. Yeah, that's so great. And it really does take a lot of education. I always like to say nutrition isn't a handout, right? We have a lot of (laughs) feelings and emotions related to these foods that we can't eat anymore. And you spoke into the fact that it's not just food, it's cosmetics and it's kitchen utensils. And we just need to be aware. Exactly. And when we talk about removal, are there things that you're also thinking about replacing, not just at the food level, but for someone with celiac disease, you mentioned there might be vitamin D deficiencies and there might be iron deficiencies. And we do need to restore and repair the villi. Are there things there we'd think about? Absolutely. And we can't just focus on the remove. I love the uh, five R's and I think that you got to really go through each one of those in detail. So when it comes to the replace, you know, we do, we have to replace now healthy anti-inflammatory foods so that we're really addressing nutrition and the person is well nourished after all these years of being malnourished, right? So that's a big part of the replacement. And then of course, enzymes can be low or hydrochloric acid can be low in these individuals and really looking at the person itself and what deficiencies they actually have. So like you said, vitamin D, ferritin, maybe low in vitamin C, different B vitamins, which are really common. So we kind of want to address those things and replace whatever is lacking in the body. Yeah, really nice to think about it more holistically like that. Nikki, if you had something you wish more clinicians knew about working with people with celiac, what would that be? So we all get that nugget right from (laughs) you who have experienced this yourself, but also work with so many people with celiac disease. Yeah, that's such a great question, Andrea. I would say, you know, really just listen to the client and just be really thorough in how you approach gluten with them. And I guess the biggest nugget that I would say is when it's on paper and people see it, they are more willing to do it, follow it and believe in it. (laughs) I find that at least for myself, I was in denial until I really saw the effects of what it was doing in my body. So I think as clinicians, we really need to show them the clinical picture. So whether that be drawing it out and show them what their intestines look like or letting them see the problem, let them see that they have a lot of nutrient deficiencies. And this is why, because we need to sometimes help motivate them to follow something like a gluten-free diet because gluten is great and it's delicious and people don't want to avoid it. So if it is something that we suspect is going to really help them, whether it be an autoimmune condition like celiac or non-celiac gluten sensitivity, I think it's really important that we show them 
kind of what it's doing to their body. And when we can do that and when we can communicate it in that way, then it's very empowering for the person. If they want to heal and they want to feel better, they're just more willing to follow it and to stick with it. Yeah. So perfectly said. I think really that empowerment is what the work is all about. Nikki, thank you so much for sharing with us today and for the work you do. Yeah. Thank you so much, Andrea, for having me. This was really fun. The 15-Minute Matrix is brought to you by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. Check out the latest in functional nutrition at functionalnutritionlab.com forward slash blog. The 15-Minute Matrix is produced, mixed, and edited by Rowan Bradley with production support from Natalie Merrill and the team at the Functional Nutrition Alliance. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com. And if you'd like to be notified by email each week about our podcast releases, head on over to 15minutematrix.com forward slash notify. Also, please feel free to get in touch with us. We would love to hear your thoughts, your feedback, and who you'd like to hear next on the podcast. You can email us at ask at 15minutematrix.com. 